you pray with me? Lord, um, that song is a statement in part and it's a prayer in part. You are awesome in this place and we want to acknowledge that and we want to experience that in deeper ways and even in this moment as we look into your word or maybe even especially in this moment as we look into your word, we ask that you would meet us, that you would be awesome in our lives because of the things that you show us and the ways that you shape us because of the word. Holy Spirit, would you just work among us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Can we get on the back screen there? Josh, that'd be great. Thank you so much. Um, I was really smart and have two, oh, got the right one. I brought two of these and it's like, which one do I have? Um, You have probably noticed there are times in life when you look forward you see what's in front of you, you see what could be, and you, you, you have this trajectory, you think, here's how it's going to turn out, and then you get to where you thought you were going to be, and it didn't turn out anything like that. Something shifted along the way. I'm sure you've probably noticed that. Sometimes it can be funny, at least after the fact. Uh, years ago, my wife and I were looking for a cheap, um, practically free vacation because we were young and married and didn't have any money. So uh, we decided, okay, we'll do one of those timeshare things, right? Because they'll let you go somewhere. And, and so we went to this timeshare presentation. We were up front. We're not really interested. Come anyway. That's fine. Um, and it's like, okay, we'll listen. And uh, so we went, and it was this lovely place. It was in South Orange County, and they had a nice reception area, and they were so gracious, and they offered us coffee and a pastry, and they seated us in a comfortable seat and all of that. And then they took us through the presentation, and oh, that's very exciting. And, and of course it is. When you're watching, it's like, oh, how can I live without that? And then rationality speaks in somewhere in the back of your mind, and you finally we convince them we actually can live without that. And uh, when, when that became clear to them, them, there was this noticeable shift, like, like it kind of sucked the oxygen out of the room and the, the warmth that was there prior disappeared. Now, they weren't rude, but they were rather cool and um, sterile in their response. And they said, okay, great. Thanks for coming. Here's your certificate. And, and uh, you, you can go now. And so we started to walk out and we were going to go out the way we came in. They said, oh, no, 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 not that way. Not that way. Over there. They pointed us to a side door that they didn't escort us to. They just said, over there. And we walked out, and it put us into, you know, one of the, um, you know, service access stairways that's kind of in the back side of the building. And uh, the door closes behind us, clang. And, and as we're walking down, you hear every step, ka-chung, 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 because it's all concrete and metal, and it's designed to echo with this walk of shame, is what I'm thinking. And uh, it, finally, we hit the bottom, and we pop pop out the back door and guess where it pops us out? Right next to the dumpster. Uh, As if that wasn't symbolic, right? Um, It it started one way and it ended very, very differently. Um, That happens even further along in life. We were visiting our daughter in Africa this last summer and uh, she doesn't have a place for us to stay, so we decided, let's do an Airbnb instead of a hotel. It's cheaper, it's better, whatever. And so you look online, you see all the pictures. The pictures always look great. Um, and then we got there, and um, you could see where the pictures came from, but what you could see when you're there personally is stuff that didn't show in the pictures, like the fact that the kitchen only had one outlet for electricity, and it wasn't anywhere near the refrigerator. So the refrigerator is not actually plugged in. 
Now, if you want to plug in the refrigerator, you unplug the microwave, you plug in an extension cord, and you run that across the kitchen that you're going to be walking through all the time to, you get the picture, right? They had a bathroom. They had two bathrooms, and it's like, oh, that's nice having a second bathroom. And uh, so went into the other bathroom, and uh, there, there it is, the toilet with no seat on it. Like, the picture showed a seat and looked over in the corner leaning against the wall. There's the seat. Oh, I get it. You perch the seat on the, well, I won't paint the rest of the picture, but you get the idea. That wasn't our favorite aspect of this quaint little Airbnb. Uh, Then we went into our bedroom, and we're in Africa where they have malaria, and so there's a mosquito net um, anchored to the middle of the ceiling uh, in the bedroom. And the bed, because of the way the bedroom is laid out, is off-center in the bedroom. So we untied it and brought it down and realized that it covered half of the bed. (laughs) And it left the half that I would be sleeping in (laughs) unprotected. And so Davette was faced with a dilemma. Do I take it on the chin for my husband or do I just say, fend for yourself, dude, I'm going under the net. And with, with, uh, you know, I'm sure stand by your man must have been going through her mind because she tied the net up and we both threw caution to the wind and slept there with the mosquitoes biting us the whole time. Uh, It looked one way in the pictures, it turned out to be a different way in reality. How many of you have ever actually been drawn into an advertisement, and then you wake up and go, wait a minute, it can't be that way. They're saying that, but it can't possibly be true. There's a lot of exercise equipment for sale in garage sales because of that, by the way, (laughs) right? Here's these, uh, these, these people that are just like carved Greek hero kind of bodies, and, and uh, they're smiling. And seven minutes a day will make you fit. And I'm thinking, you know, I work out really hard five times a week, and I don't look like them. I still look like this. <laughs> and I work a lot more than seven days a week, and I'm never smiling. <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty much a rule that if, if you're smiling, it's not working. <laughs> and if it's working, you're not smiling. There's this, there's this disconnect, and there's this picture of what could be, and then it doesn't seem to pan out. Now, sometimes those things are humorous, and sometimes they're not. Every couple who stands at the altar pictures a, a, a beautiful future when they beamingly smile and say, I do. They don't picture the angry outcome when one says to the other, I'm done. Something broke down between here and there, and what we wanted didn't happen. Children are always filled with promise for the future, and when you have children, you're just so excited, and you have all these dreams and hopes, and none of us ever dreams that our kid will grow up and have an addiction problem. None of us ever gets our child a cell phone and expects them to actually start sexting. Right? There's this picture, and then there's this reality that kind of spreads out. And sometimes the reality is the good thing we'd want, and sometimes it seems it's pretty far afield. This morning's passage starts with this picture that's so cool, and it's so filled with promise, and it's so filled with hope. And the reality winds up nothing like 
And what we want to look at is we want to, we want to, we want to understand that trajectory, and then we want to see why what was promised in this place didn't come about in this place. Because there was a breakdown in the people themselves that brought it about, and there's things that we can learn from that. Here's some of the most hopeful verses in the Bible. These are the very last words in the Hebrew Bible, right? Our Christian uh, Bibles take the Old Testament and structure it slightly differently, exactly the same content, but the Jewish um, Hebrew Bible will have what's called Tanakh, Torah, uh, Navim, Ketuvim, the, the, the law, the prophets, and the writings, and the last of the writings is Second Chronicles 36, so the very last words, the very last words in the Hebrew Bible are these here. This would have hung over their history. This is the promise. This is the moment you go, that's so cool. How great is it? If you were here last week, you saw Charlie left us in a really tough spot. Actually, he just faithfully reported people being in a really tough spot. We don't blame Charlie for that. Um, We see that the people of Israel had failed to keep their covenant relationship with God. Right? The point of temple and tabernacle is that God's purpose is relationship, not rules. But we don't dismiss the rules because a real relationship with a real God has to reshape our lives. And there's a, a covenant response that is necessary. And they failed at that in so many ways. And by the end of the time last week, we had no Jerusalem, no temple, no presence of God, no Ark of the Covenant, no nation. They're taken away into captivity and all is lost. And they're there for 70 years. And then this happens. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation. The Lord, the God of heaven, has charged me, this is a pagan king, a pagan emperor, he rules the world, he is the most powerful man on the planet by multiple orders of magnitude at this point in time. Him saying this is staggering. The Lord, the God of heaven, has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. In other words, all of you that came with Nebuchadnezzar, the empire has shifted, the Persians are in control. Yahweh's told me his temple needs to be rebuilt. I'm guaranteeing it. I'm funding it. I'm making it happen. And all of you people go home. All of you people go home. Go rebuild this place. Let God be with you. That's about as hopeful as you can possibly be. The presence of God has disappeared. The temple of God is gone. We have utterly failed, and now we get a total do-over? How cool is that? That's that moment when you look and say, this is great. What a great start. But how's the story going to finish? If you have your Bible, go ahead and open to Mark chapter 13, please. Page 798, if you're using the one from the lobby there that we keep on the table, you're welcome to take that with you as our gift if it would be helpful for you. Just read you a couple of verses here. This is the uh, other side of the story. This is right at the end of Jesus' life and ministry. In Mark chapter 13. Speaking about Jesus, says, as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here 
one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. All this stuff looks really impressive and it's about to be destroyed. The promise that you think is here isn't. It's already gone. How did we get from that verse in 2 Chronicles to Jesus' statement? Here's the Jerusalem that Jesus would have been in, right? At the end of, of Charlie's message, Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem. He destroyed the temple. That was a much smaller Jerusalem and a smaller temple. Solomon's temple was exquisite, extraordinary, but Herod's temple was actually more grand by quite a bit. Solomon bathed his in gold. Literally, the inside was totally coated in gold, even the floors. Well, Herod threw gold on this one too, but he just didn't have the firepower that Solomon did, so he made up for it by expanding the Temple Mount, expanding the temple itself, made this thing vast. It was extraordinary. In fact, the ancient rabbis said, if you haven't seen the temple, you have not seen a beautiful thing. And they're talking about this temple, the one that Herod did. Actually, it started before that. So the people are in exile in Babylon and Persia for 70 years. And then Cyrus makes this decree and lets them go back. And he says, actually, all of you guys go back. And they start to rebuild, but only a few went back. That's already a start of a problem. Because you see, while there would need to be Jewish people all over the world for the Jewish nation to thrive, there wouldn't need to be huge populations, and the promises of God were tied to the land for them. They belonged in the land. And they opted not to go back because they liked life better in Persia. They liked life better in Babylon. They liked life eventually better in Greece and Rome and all of these other places because life was better for them. It was more comfortable for them. It was, they had businesses. Their kids were in school. They had settled into communities. And that was what was driving them. And so only a remnant went back to rebuild in Jerusalem. And they started the rebuilding process. And then there's this cycle of about 500 years where uh, Israel is, is this political uh, volleyball being bounced back and forth, has independence only for a short time, and it's really an enslaved state. And then they have uh, a guy who becomes their king. He's actually a governor because Caesar is really in charge, named Herod. There's a whole family of Herods. Herod the Great, the first one, became the great because he was a particular friend and help to Julius Caesar and then later to Augustus Caesar. So the Jewish people of old had special status over almost everyone else in the world because of that relationship, and that erodes over time. But Herod is that same awful Herod that tries to put Jesus to death. He's only half Jewish, so he's got all these issues with the people who don't really fully trust him. And one of the things he does is he pours into this temple and makes what was a small temple rebuilt and kind of refurbished over the years and neglected in that same cycle, he takes it in his life and he makes it extraordinary. In fact, it extends beyond his life. It takes him nearly 50 years to do the build out and that's what we see dominating this model of the city of Jerusalem. Here's the model of Herod's temple. It was huge and it dominated the skyline. Here's what it looked like after the events that Jesus talked about. He said, none of this is gonna be left. If you go to Jerusalem today, you'll see what's the Western Wall, which is a, a really prominent place, and that's actually, the, that's actually the foundation, that's the retaining wall, right? There's no, nothing left of the temple itself. 
Those stones that they're talking about in Jesus' story, some of them are the size of a school bus. They're immense. It's this amazing engineering thing. It's the center of Jewish life. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. And Jesus says, this is all being removed because it's off track. It's all going away. And when the Romans come along, that's what they do to it. The western wall has been cleaned away so you can get to it. This is just a few yards away where they left the rubble and it's crushed the pavement below and it's just a big mess. How did they get from the promise of going back under Cyrus where Cyrus is actually going to fund them and protect them and sponsor them and then this vast build out that Herod does to this rubble pile? That's where the real lesson comes in. Because if temple is going to be understood biblically, it's not fundamentally about the building, nor is it fundamentally about the rituals that take place in the building. It's about the relationship, and that's where they were off track. They were half-hearted. So many people didn't return because they'd rather be where they were. Those that did return were still half-hearted. They only kind of bought in. And we'll see some examples of that, and then draw a few simple lessons that we want to look at for our own lives, because while we live in a different era and our connection with God looks different, we can still, and I believe, do still stumble over the same things they stumbled over. Next week's going to be about Jesus. That's when we go, yeah, this week's going to be hard if we take it seriously. They're half-hearted, and that turns into a total fail, right? Here's a question we need to be asking ourselves. This is the question they failed at. Am I in a convenient relationship with God or am I in a covenant relationship with God? Night and day difference between those two things. A convenient relationship with God is one where God matters, but I want him to step in and out as it's convenient for me. I want him to meet certain needs, solve certain problems, protect me from certain things. I'll even worship him in certain ways because I feel better, life goes better, whatever. I'm partway in, sometimes I really feel it, sometimes I really don't, and it's always an option. A covenant relationship with God is one where God still initiates, right? I don't buy my way into relationship with God. I don't indebt him in any way. I don't earn his favor. It's always grace. It's always his initiative. But how do I respond? And if I'm in real relationship with a real God, everything really changes. And it didn't for them. It only partly changed. Let's look at some of the examples. So here's our verses in 2 Chronicles 36. And read that last little phrase again. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. He's saying, go. All of you, go. Go home. Rebuild. And most of them don't. And then those that do, well, here's a description of what goes on with them. This comes from the book of Haggai. Well, let me get my, there we are. Um, Who's a prophet. And this comes about 20 years, give or take, after Cyrus's decree. They've been in the land for 20 years. Years They've gone back to build the temple and they've been there for 20 years and God prods his prophet and say, wake them up. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. I can't even say, do you want an engraved invitation? Because they got one. The emperor of the world gave them a, a command. What do you mean it's not time to rebuild? 
And God's like, what are you guys thinking of? Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? See, like we sometimes do, they're like, God, yeah, you matter, but I, 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 gotta, I gotta get to this, right? I, I'm, I'm gonna get to it, but right now, you know, my house needs this, my, house, my life needs certain things, and then we'll attend to this. Right? Your house can lie in ruins as long as my house is getting where it needs to be. Eventually, I'll come back around to you. That's a half-hearted God of convenience, not, of, not a God of covenant kind of response. And that's how they are living. God has to send a prophet to poke them to wake them up so that they actually build the temple, which they do. A generation or two later... He sends another prophet to poke them because even with the temple in place, they're still half-hearted and not really engaging rightly with God. And here's what he says. As sons, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If I then am a father, where's my honor? And if I am a master, where's my fear? Says the Lord of hosts. To you, O priests who despise my name. Like, well, earthly fathers get honor. Earthly rulers get honor. Where's mine? And you're the priests. What's going on? And then he tells them, how? You know, you despise my name. And they say, how are we despising your name? He gives them a long list. This is just a few things. You offer blind animals in sacrifice. You offer those that are lame or sick. And then he says, go and try, try to do that with your governor. See if he accepts that. Right? You, you, you look at the flock and say, I got to do something for God. What's the least I can get by with? Right? Not that lamb. That's my best lamb. Oh, this one here has got all kinds of problems. Oh, how convenient. We'll just sacrifice the one that's already dying. Please don't, please don't expire on the way to the temple because then it doesn't count. You know, wait until he kills you. Then you can die. And God's saying, what's that? That's not the heart of somebody who's all in with a God who is all worthy. In the book of Mark, leading up to the verses we read, in fact, let me um, just quickly summarize the section and and point you to it. If you want to read Mark 11, 11 through 12, 12 this afternoon, it'll be really instructive for you because it really captures what's going on. We unpacked it a while back for a Palm Sunday, I think a couple of years ago. You could look online if you want to hear that sermon, but Jesus is coming in on Palm Sunday. He comes into Jerusalem, walks into the temple, looks around, says nothing, does nothing, turns around, walks out, goes back over the Mount of Olives a number of miles to spend the night. It's a really ridiculous kind of use of time unless you understand what he's doing, right? Why go into the, why not just wait till the next morning? If it's that late in the day, you can't do anything. Don't go into Jerusalem, wait until tomorrow. That's not what he's doing. He's going in, he's looking in the temple with his own eyes to see what he already knows is going on, but he's coming back in the next day to lower the hammer of judgment. And he's giving it one more look over. He leaves and on his way back in, uh, he sees a fig tree and it's got leaves but no fruit and he curses it. Saying, you can't, 
Yeah, you just need to die. You're not fruitful. Now, the ironic thing is that it's not fruitful because it's not the season for figs, and the one who set the seasons is the one who's cursing the tree. He's cursing the tree that's doing exactly what it was designed to do. He's obviously not mad at the tree. He didn't just wake up on the wrong side of the bed. The disciples aren't like, oh, don't get too close to Jesus today. He might, I don't know. He's, he's giving a lesson, right? Israel was, one of the images for Israel was a fig tree. It's like these leaders, this temple, this whole nation is like this leafy tree. It looks good from a distance. You get up close and you see there's no fruit. Goes into the temple, drives out the money changers and those that are selling the animals. Wreaks havoc, really. Goes back and the tree is withered from the roots up because he's God, he's got that power. Goes back the next day and he starts telling a story about how uh, he's challenged over where did he get this authority and then he tells a story saying, there was a guy who owned a vineyard and he hired some people and said, take care of my vineyard. When it was time to get the crops, he sent a servant to get the crops that were his share and they beat him and they sent him away. He sent another servant, they beat him. Another one they abused, another one they killed. Finally, he sent his son to get what was his due, and they said, wow, here's our chance. Let's take over. Let's kill him. Now, they didn't understand all the details, but they knew that was about them, and it's the son who's telling them the story. That's the picture. You guys, God set you up to lead my people and be fruitful, and you are fruitless, and judgment is coming. In that context, he's speaking to the larger group and especially to his disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. Matthew, similar context. Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, well, that's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. Where do you get this stuff? How do you make this up, this rationalization? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. You run to the kitchen, you open the spice drawer and say, there's God's part, and there's God's part, and there's God's part, and now God can have a lovely salad, and it'll be good, and you leave the important things out. You're tithing out of your spice drawer, but you've neglected the weightier things of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. That's what's going on. That's why what could have been so great when Cyrus said, go build it, and they only went half-hearted, and they got off track, and this is how they got off track in part. Well, I hope Nancy Marriott's not in the room because she'll get mad at me. (laughs) Get too vigorous, and look what happens. Now I lost my place. You, you ladies want to come up and sing again? <laughs> We're just trying to catch my breath here. Um, well, let's go on to the next slide. Maybe that'll be helpful. Here we go. All right. So here's what's going on, right? Here's, here's the problem. These, these people who want this relationship with God, who have this wonderful opportunity, are selective in their obedience. They're selective. They... Um, 
do things and yet they try to maintain comfort. They do things and yet they excuse their greed. And they minimize the important things. Right? I'll obey this because I like doing this. I won't obey that. And it's amazing how they can rationalize and work their way around things so that they come out how they want. That is, that is the sign of somebody who is in um, a convenient relationship with God, not a covenant relationship with God. Here's another way they went off the rails. Jesus entered the temple, same section of scripture. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables I better stand back, of the money changers (laughs) and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you've made it a den of robbers? Now, he's gone back to the greed theme that we've already seen, but there's something more here, right? And to understand that, we need to understand how this is set up. These are people who are selling animals and changing money, which is absolutely essential for the right worship of God by his people. They needed to be selling money, and they need to be, they need to be selling animals, they need to be changing money. If, you, if you're coming from Rome, you don't keep a lamb in your pocket, that's a little painful. You have to buy it when you get there, and the poor people would buy pigeons. That was, that was their sacrifice, right? So there's these different levels of sacrifice. The animals are being sold so that you can make the sacrifice. There was a tax you had to pay at the temple using a certain currency. Your Parthian currency wouldn't work. Your Cappadocian currency wouldn't work. Your Egyptian currency wouldn't work. You had to exchange that. It's happening there. Now, they're obviously profiteering off of that, which makes Jesus mad, but there's something else that he highlights when he says, wait a minute, my house is called a house of prayer for all the nations. And what they've done is the temple is built up with these concentric courtyards, and the outermost biggest one is called the courtyard of the Gentiles. It's where non-Jews could go and pray and worship. How do you pray and worship when you hear all this cacophony of people exchanging monies and animals going back and forth? and And It's like it's really hard to focus. What happened? How did the leadership sell that idea to the people? Well... I actually think it was probably pretty simple. They're more interested in worship being comfortable for them than in the world being reached. Right? I'm I'm here to worship God. I want it to fit me. I want it to be easy for me. If I have to go down the hill to change my money, because the temple's at the top of everything. If you ever get a chance to go there, you'll be winded when you get to the temple steps because it's up from everywhere. It's like, I don't want to go all the way down there and get an animal. I'll buy it right here. I don't care if the Gentiles have a place to pray. Who cares about them? See what's going on in their hearts? Here's another way they got off the rails. Again, it's in this closing section building towards the crucifixion. This is in John Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead, which is really inconvenient because they're saying Jesus is a charlatan, he's not from God, and then he raises somebody from the dead. And they go, oh, man, bummer, right? You should be happy, right? No, they're ready to kill Lazarus because he's in the way because he's going around, hey, I was dead, now I'm alive, Jesus did it, I think he's from God. And everyone's like, dude, he must be. And all the leaders are like, whoa, 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 whoa. We gotta kill Lazarus and Jesus now. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. 
That last little phrase is particularly interesting window into their hearts. Their great fear was losing their political power, not failing God's purpose. The Romans are not going to leave us in this favored position anymore. We need that power. Last one we'll look at. I think there are probably more themes we could distill, but I think these four are actually very central. Jesus says, who's John? You know, they ask him, who gave you the right to throw people out of the temple like that? He said, I'll tell you what, I'll answer your question if you answer me this. Who's John? Right? Is he from God or not? Now, Jesus is backing them into a corner, so they have to make a choice. Right? John is a prophet. Everyone knows that. And John's message is Jesus is the Messiah. So you answer the question, well, John's a prophet. You've also answered the question, well, who gave you the authority? I'm the Messiah. I have the authority. And if you won't own that, which they don't believe, they believe John is, is deluded and Jesus is a charlatan and the poor sotted masses are following this myth, then as the spiritual leaders, they have a moral responsibility to stand up and say, don't go that way. Jesus is forcing them into a place where they either have to admit they're wrong or act with integrity to their role and they punt. Well, we're afraid of the people because they believe John's really a prophet. So we answer, mm, oh, we don't know. They are, they care more about what people think of them than what God thinks of them. There's all this promise when Cyrus makes this decree and it doesn't come about and in the scriptures over and over again we see patterns that say they're half-hearted in this. They're selective in their obedience they go after their preferred comfort and worship rather than God's mission. They're more interested in saving their political power than filling the role God has for them. And they care more about what the world around them thinks of them than about what God is thinking of them. They've traded their covenant relationship with God for a convenient one. I want us to spend just a couple of minutes looking at this list and now thinking about ourselves. When I saw where this message was going, I started really just following the scriptures and looking to see, wait, where does this actually touch down? I got more and more heavy-hearted. And I prayed more and more, God, what, what's the tone you want me to have? And how do, I, how do I communicate what you've got here? Because as I look at that, that to me looks like a precise template for much of the church of Jesus in the United States today. And what's more deeply burdensome is to my eyes and discernment I think there's actually pretty deep resonance here in some of these ways. So part of what I was asking God is, Lord, this is really confronted. Is this supposed to be like prophetic because there's a time and a place to be prophetic? In which case, if this is you, knock it off because you're messing up your relationship with God. And by the way, because we're tied together, you're messing up my relationship with God too. Knock it off. 
that what you want, God? A prophetic tone? You want a, like a pastoral tone? Come on, guys. God's given us everything we need. We don't have to go there. We can be what he's calling us to be. He's given us his spirit. Finish well. And I was going back and forth on that until about 7.30 this morning, and I just finally concluded, I think God said, yes. So here it is. If that's you, knock it off. You're messing us up. And you're hurting yourself. When I said knock it off, (laughs) that is not what I meant. I also want to be really pastoral. I look at that list, and the first one, I think, catches all of us. In fact, I know the first one catches all of us. If the first one's not catching you, you're not thinking, because you are not yet fully like Jesus. I am not yet fully like Jesus. So that's where I've been wrestling for me. Is where am I selectively obedient? Where am I rationalizing or emphasizing and de-emphasizing in ways that I like? Where am I half-hearted? All of us need to grow. All of us can grow because the Holy Spirit has been given to us. So as we think about these for just another couple of minutes... Let the Spirit search you. Here's here's the kicker that I think is really important. All of these things are true of them, emphatically obvious. Jesus called them out. They vehemently denied it. They were absolutely convinced this wasn't true. And that's the reality. You get called out on something like that, and there comes a point in time when we inoculate ourselves to actually hearing from God And we deny it and we rationalize around it or we respond harshly, angrily, dismissively towards whoever the messenger is. And that's exactly what they did to Jesus. Just a few hours later, he's hanging on a cross. We don't want to be that. So if God's got something he's going to punch us in the gut with, then let's take the punch and say, okay, God, what's the healing supposed to be? So let's look at these things again. Selective obedience. They were interested in doing things their way. Where am I selectively obedient? My life as a whole is following Jesus, but then when I'm alone with my computer, or when I'm alone with my girlfriend or boyfriend, I treat everyone else the way Jesus would want me to treat them, at least as much as I can, unless I'm talking about my spouse. Most of my life is really in line, but my mouth gets to do what it wants to. God has a lot of things in my life. I I was having a conversation with a new believer yesterday that I, or earlier this week, that I interact with regularly, trying to encourage him in his faith. And he he said, I don't know if I should ask you this question, but I want to talk about giving. But you're a pastor, so maybe I shouldn't ask you about giving. But he asked anyway. Anyway. And he was wrestling with, what do I give? And what's that supposed to look like? I hear some people say 10%, and I'm not sure. And, and, uh, and I, I backed up, and I tried to walk him through an understanding. And I started by saying, it doesn't matter the number. Let's start with not the what, but the why. 
you come to a place where you are lined up with God in your heart and do that. And here's what I promise you, almost certainly, because I know a little bit of his standing, you'll be given more than 10% really soon. Because he asked, what is God, how much of it is God's? I said, every last penny. Every last penny is God's. All of it's his, I use for his glory. Part of glorifying God is putting food in my family's mouth or taking a vacation and enjoying, right? God's not opposed to those things. It's a different way. It's a different why. And if I get the why right, faithfully, the what follows. That's their problem. They tried to do the what. They were half-hearted. They never dealt with the why. That's why it failed the first time. That's why it failed the second time. Where am I selectively obedient? Comfortable overreaching the world. This is a huge issue in a lot of churches. And it's one that creeps up in our lives over and over and over again because it's hard. Right, let me start by giving some strong affirmation. You have been faithful, not perfect, but faithful, to follow God the best that we understand, though it's been hard. Made some hard choices for the sake of the mission that he called us to, even though it made my worship harder. Thank you. God is honored in that. Finish strong. I find the older I get, the harder that is. When I was 35 and the fire was in my gut, it wasn't hard to say, let's go do it. I don't care. Now I'm 55 and there's more gut and less fire. It's like, all right, God, I'm coming. Just give me five minutes to get off the chair here and I'm going to be with you. It gets harder. And I have to keep coming back and saying, all right, Lord, my heart, my heart. These last two tend to break along generational lines, not strictly, but there's a center of gravity. This first one will hit those my age and older, many of us, like a sledgehammer to the face if I'm hearing it properly, and I need to hear it properly. I am deeply distressed at what I see in the world at large of Christianity where we have this insane fixation on our loss of political power. That's where they were fixated. I live in a democracy, praise God, and there's a lot of good things, and there's a lot of things about this democracy that I don't like, and I want to use that influence, and I want to vote, and I want to make changes, absolutely. But what the world needs from me is that I would be a faithful gospel Christian, first and foremost, And if fear is driving me so that all of my conversation and all of my thoughts and all of my wrestlings and all of my emotional energy is going into this question, I have lost my footing. That's where they were. And if you're there, drop the TV remote and back up. Shut down your Facebook page and go talk to your neighbor. All of us can fall into that trap, and people my age and older, it is, it is epidemic. Let's not do that. Now, to make everyone else in the room uncomfortable, 
Again, it's not just age-wise, but there's a center of gravity. And if you're in your teens, 20s, 30s, 40s, this is probably where you struggle. They cared more about what the world around them thought than what God thought. I'll give you two words that many people are ready to throw out biblical Christianity over. Because our culture looks at these things and says, that's ridiculous. And we're afraid of the culture. The two words are sovereignty and sexuality. Right? Truth is truth. And love means I'm gracious, I'm accepting, I'm affirming, I'm caring, I'm gentle, I'm kind, but it never means I'm deceptive. It never means I'll shove the truth off to the side, bury the truth, minimize the truth. God is sovereign, and that creates problems for us. And how our responsibility and his sovereignty work out is what theologians debate all the time. But we don't like that because we want to be sovereign, and our culture looks at that and says that's ridiculous. And when it gets to sexuality, it scatters all over the place. And people have desires and dreams and urges, and we understand all of that, and we need to love people and all of that, but we can't give away, here's where God is. In fact, it's our job to say, I love you. Can I introduce you to God who can meet your needs? And some of us are willing to throw biblical Christianity under the bus because we're afraid of the culture. That's where they were. Half-hearted, total fail. That's where they were. We don't have to be there. In fact, it's easier for us not to be there because we have the Holy Spirit living in us and the whole nature of this reality has shifted and praise God, next week's coming. But right now, we need to let this week sink in. And we need to ask ourselves, am I in a convenient relationship with God or am I in a covenant relationship with God? Because they don't look the same. I'm going to ask the ushers to come. We're going to take our offering. Lord, uh, man, we're all broken. We are all sinners. We are all failing in ways. We're dysfunctional. We're hurting. We've, we don't even know how to move forward. There's so many wonderful things you've made about us, and yet we're still this knotted up mixture that we, we just need your help. Lord, we don't want to be half-hearted followers, and yet our own hearts are prone to wander. Would you fasten us to yourself by your grace? Would you help us to respond? Lord, if there's something between us that we've allowed in, some sin, maybe one of these four sins or maybe more than one, would you highlight that? And would you grow us? May we worship you with whole hearts, broken though they may be. In Jesus' name, amen.